The Lord be with you. Let us pray. God of liberation, we ask for your presence among us today. Fill us with your spirit. Guide us with your spirit. Help us to discern what the next right thing might be in our lives, as individuals and as communities. We thank you for all that Joe will offer us this morning. May we be transformed by what we hear and take it out into the world to live God's love. We pray this in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Good morning. It has been, I think, about 40 days uh, since the conclusion of Lent, but I think we have not forgotten that during that period, we had a very definitive focus on the question of repentance and repair. And in particular, this year, this focus on what it would mean to engage in collective repentance and collective repair. And so, you know, there were sermons by Joshua and Ledley and Melanie Mullen from the diocese. We had Wednesday evenings, Ledley showed the memorable film Traces of the Trade about his family's attempt to engage with their involvement in the slave trade. Uh, and we began with a forum on February the 8th, actually before Lent, uh, by Will Thomas, the author of A Question of Freedom which many of you may have attended. It had actually been our hope that when we began this focused attention on uh, repentance and repair that we would begin with our guest today, Joe Thompson, because he's a close friend of Will Thomas and they serve on the board at Virginia Theological Seminary together and that we could engage both of them in a discussion of that topic. But. Um, we bookend Lent uh, today by having Joe Thompson with us, and we're delighted. Um, as many of you may know, he's on the faculty at Virginia Theological Seminary, where he's associate dean of multicultural ministries and teaches practical theology to the students there. But he brings to bear uh, a background beyond theology because he has PhD in African American studies and English from Yale. And so his his career, his past, his 10 years at teaching at Washington University, his seven years of teaching at Virginia Theological Seminary have been about this intersection between theology and race. And so today we're glad to circle back to where we started when Will Thomas came to speak to us about freedom lawsuits and about the need, he thought, for more lamentation in the church uh, before we move forward. But today, Joe can, talks about how Virginia Theological Seminary has wrestled with its own history and about the program of reparations that's emerged from that reckoning. So, welcome. Glad to have you with us. Good morning. You can hear me okay? Good. Um, it's a pleasure to be here with you in this wonderful sanctuary. Um, I thank you very much for the very kind um, and thorough introduction. I would love to take you with me wherever I go. That was, <laughs> that was, that was great. Um, 
I'm actually going to begin by sharing with you a video uh, that is from our reparations program. And so if you would direct your attention to the screen to my left, um, we'll play that and then we'll talk about it on the other side. as an example of uh, kind of the fruits of what we've been up to with the program. This comes from, or the images that you saw in that video, comes from a gala that we had last summer about this time in June of 2022 for descendants of those uh, who were enslaved at BTS or mostly actually those who uh, labored at BTS during Jim Crow. And we sent this video out to them afterwards as a thank you for participating, for coming uh, to, to the event. But it gives an idea of some of the connections that are being made uh, between the descendant families and the seminary as part of this program. But I'm going to now kind of rewind and take you all the way back to the beginning of the program. Uh, that was first announced in August of uh, September <clears throat> of 2019. So we've been going for almost four years now. 
And it was interesting to me, you know, once it was announced, we had a, quite a bit of media coverage, and so I was getting contacted by people from all over the country wanting to talk to me about the program and what we were doing and what had been said in the media and so forth. And one of the things that uh, people who were proponents of reparations at other institutions would ask me and would almost be like in a whispered tone, they would say, how did you get them to do that? And I thought that was very amusing because I can't take any credit for the seminary actually deciding to establish the program. It came about really because the leadership of the seminary wanted to do something uh, kind of in response to all of the advocacy that had happened for really decades, and you could even say centuries, from black Episcopalians and allies asking the Episcopal Church and its institutions to really live up to its creed in terms of welcoming all people, having justice for all people. And so there's a, there's a longer story there, and this is kind of the culmination of a story, the fact that uh, BTS decided to do this reparations program. The other piece um, that the leadership wanted to honor was the fact that we were coming up on the 200th anniversary of the seminary, uh, 1823. 2023. So uh, back in 2019, we were starting to think about uh, this momentous occasion, and the, the, the leadership of the seminary wanted to make sure that a fuller, more thorough, truthful history was being told here at year 200, as opposed to the history that has sometimes been told before. And so they wanted to really acknowledge the vast debt that the seminary owes to those who worked uh, at VTS during slavery and during Jim Crow. So again, the impetus for the program did not come from me. However, I can claim to have a very strong stamp on how the program actually plays out. I, I'm, you could say, the primary architect of the program. Uh, you know, it, my influence is, is, is definitely on the program. And so today I have two primary purposes. I want to tell you a little bit about the program, what its basic features are, but then I also want to share with you, really from a personal perspective, some of the, um, I could, suppose you could say principles, some of the values that have gone into the shaping of this program uh, from, from my perspective. And so um, I think, why don't we go ahead and play the second clip because yeah, and it starts at about minute four and 55 seconds, yeah. And I could, I could have stood up here and just kind of said all this to you, but this has some images, and that way you don't have to just listen to me, you know, kind of droning on, so. initiative that includes a research team and an implementation effort. The research team is comprised of historical and genealogical experts, Char Baugh, Elizabeth Drimbis, Maddie McCoy, and Christopher Pope, the seminary archivist. The research team is coordinated ably by Ebony Davis. The implementation effort includes Ebony and me and members of the reparations subcommittee of the Dean's Task Force on Diversity, Inclusion, and Equity. It is this group, in consultation with the leadership of the seminary, that establishes the program's policies. The 
research team is tasked with gathering historical documentation and conducting genealogical research to find living descendants. The implementation effort is tasked with the administration of the program, specifically fostering relationships with the descendant families to assess their wishes as beneficiaries, administering the other aspects of the program that relate to churches and alumni, determining the program's policies, working with the communications department to manage media inquiries, and managing the program's financial matters. To date, our research team has uncovered the names of scores of African Americans who labored at VTS during slavery, and about 12 families whose ancestors worked at VTS during the Jim Crow era. Within these families are dozens of individuals who worked at VTS in service positions such as janitor, waiter, laundress, cook, farmhand, driver, helper, and domestic servant. Our research goes in two main directions. Maddie and Elizabeth use historical records to find the names of enslaved persons who labored here, and then they work forward in time to see if they can locate living descendants. Char starts with families still in this geographical area who are certain that their relatives worked here in the early 20th or late 19th century. She documents those family members and then tries to trace the family's connections to the seminary as far back in time as possible. The Jim Crow era has yielded the largest volume of information to date. The seminary is located in Alexandria, Virginia, a city with a significant black community and deep historical roots. Many within that community have ties to the seminary that go back several generations. Thus, we are fortunate to have the benefit of living memory to aid us in the process of uncovering this history. Out of the dozen or so major black families in this area, our researchers have interviewed eight. Of those eight families, several have already received reparations payments, and we will be in conversation with the remainder to sort out their wishes and disperse payments. We have yet to connect with any living descendants of known enslaved people from the antebellum period, but the research efforts have been overwhelmingly fruitful. Of the numerous names uncovered, we have surnames for many, which is incredibly helpful in finding descendants. We've also been able to get a picture of what Alexandria's slave society would have looked like. Our researchers have been mapping out a landscape that highlights the area's commercial and social industries its need for various kinds of labor, the seasonal needs for labor, and most importantly, the centrality of the Episcopal Church, its clergymen, parishioners, and subsidiary institutions to the inner workings of this entire network of enslavement. My efficiency has changed. You know, 90 We've talked a lot about the research, but what's the process for engaging with the descendants? Now keep in mind that no two cases are the same. What we can tell you is what our typical process looks like. First, the research team reports its findings and shares the names and contact information of identified descendant families. Either Ebony or I follow up with the families to further share specifics on the initiative, offer a meeting with the very Reverend Ian S. Markham, the seminary's dean and president, 
engage the descendants in conversation about how they would like to see their ancestor remembered and begin working through the details of their wishes for the shares of the fund. We encourage them to come to the table with whatever creative ideas they may have, be it pooling the money together, donating it, setting up a scholarship, or dedicating it to a larger financial goal. Descendants are also eligible to eat lunch for free in the refectory, borrow books from the Bishop Payne Library, and audit a course for free. We have developed a systematic onboarding protocol to help us deal with the descendants efficiently and uniformly, while at the same time remaining responsive to each person's particular feelings and wishes. Descendants who have been designated as shareholders are eligible for an annual distribution that they and their descendants or designated beneficiaries will receive in perpetuity. Once they have decided their wishes, we document the particular terms in a letter signed by Dean Markham and by the descendant. We authorize the payment and, if able, honor any other requests that have been made. There is a provision in all the letters of agreement that allows the shareholders or their designees to renegotiate the agreement later if they wish. One of the examples of a special request is that one of our shareholders, Gerald Wanzer, had a birthday coming up when he met with Dean Markham. He expressed interest in having a celebration on campus in a way that his ancestor would never have been able to do. So the dean invited him and his family to the seminary for a tour of the campus, followed by a lovely dinner in Bicentennial Hall, where we're standing right now. Essentially, the seminary is creating a trust for and with the descendant families. the shares of the financial component of the trust determined and how are they implemented? On July 1 of each year, the draw rate for the overall seminary endowment is used to determine how much is available from the reparations endowment to be distributed to descendants. An equal share of those funds will be provided annually to members of the generation of each family that is closest to the enslaved person or segregation era employee, and that still has at least one living family member. Those particular descendants are considered shareholders. The total figure available for distribution from the reparations endowment each year is divided by the number of shareholders that we have identified up until that point to determine the actual dollar amount that will be allocated to each shareholder. If a shareholder is deceased, then the value of his or her share is divided equally among his or her children. Shareholders may designate someone other than themselves to receive the funds. Here is a fictitious sample case of a descendant family due reparations from BTS. In this example, Eliza Jackson worked at BTS during the Jim Crow era. As members of the generation of this family that has living descendants, her three grandchildren, Keith, Francis, and Johanna, are the shareholders. As such, each of them will receive an individual share of the reparations fund. And because Keith is deceased, his share will be divided between his three children. Now, at this point, 
many people will ask important questions. Okay. All right, so that just gives you an idea of the basics. Um, and I can answer questions uh, if you have any when we get to the question and answer period. But now to say a little bit more about, that, that, you, that gives you the what, to talk now a little bit more about the why. What were we thinking about? What was I thinking about in influencing the program in these ways? So the first thing, uh, when I was asked by the administration of the seminary to lead this project, what did I think about? Well, I thought about my people. I thought about uh, my mother, my father, uh, who's deceased and has been deceased for quite some time. I thought about his life. I thought about my, uh, both of my grandmothers uh, who are deceased and have been deceased for a long time. I thought about my grandfathers, neither of whom I, I knew. They both uh, died. One died before I was born, the other before I remember, could remember him. I thought about my very large extended family. I thought about the pride that we have in uh, our heritage as black people, uh, even though that has often been uh, compromised um, by the society that we live in. And yet we have managed to uh, survive and also thrive in many ways. And so it seemed to me that reparations, working on this reparations program would be one small way for me to contribute to this ongoing process of liberation for black people and also this ongoing process of uh, surviving and thriving for black people. But I have to say, it did take me a while to figure out exactly how I should orient myself to the program because here I am both a member of the aggrieved community uh, not that, so far as I know, I don't have ancestors who were at VTS, but uh, being African-American and thinking about the larger uh, reparations movement, I'm a member of the aggrieved community. And I'm also, at the same time, a public representative and a officer, if you will, of the seminary that is trying to make some kind of amends for uh, its past behavior. And so, uh, eventually though, I came to view myself as having a role in keeping VTS honest in this process. Uh, as my colleague Ebony, who you, who you saw in the video, uh, as she says, and I, you know, borrow slash steal this from her all the time, she says, uh, this is not my wrong to write. But what we can do is be something of a bridge between the seminary and the black community that it's trying to serve through this program. And so a guiding scriptural light for me in this program came to be uh, that passage where you have uh, John the baptized be baptized, if you recall that, and he says to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not begin to yourself, to, do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor. 
For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, the common English Bible renders that verse about bearing fruit worthy of repentance, renders it even more pointedly. It says, produce fruit that shows you have changed your hearts and lives. Produce fruit that shows you have changed your hearts and lives. So what does this mean for the reparations program from my perspective? Well, it spoke to me of the fact that I would need to view the motivations of my institutions with some degree of skepticism, that I would have to be looking for signs that might indicate whether this was about true repentance or if it was merely indicative of seeking an easy salvation without genuine repentance. Might it be that VTS was behaving in the manner that John associated with the crowds that were coming for baptism? That is, he suspected that they were coming to him in a first century act of spiritual virtue signaling, if you will, mouthing the right words, but not allowing God to change their lives. So God is the ultimate judge of whether, God is the ultimate judge of everything, but God is the ultimate judge of whether this reparations program is an outgrowth of true repentance. However, in my opinion, it is really only the descendants who can say whether or not VTS has acted in a manner that genuinely tells the truth about and repairs the consequences of the sins that were committed against the humanity and the dignity of their ancestors. And only they can say whether the seminary has done enough to acknowledge and repay the actual debt that it owes to their ancestors. So for me, as one uh, putting this program together, it was very important to make sure that the descendants and their ability to pass judgment, as it were, on what we were doing was actually very central to the program. So then, um, I want to tell you uh, a bit about some of the various features of the program and, and why, again, why we did them that way, keeping in mind this principle of uh, one, the seminary actually acknowledging a debt uh, not just simply saying we're going to welcome people that we haven't welcomed before, which is in any case presumptuous of a Christian organization because basic welcome of all people should never have been in question, I would argue. But we want to move beyond that to thinking about the indebtedness of the seminary to this particular group. So how do we emphasize that and how do we uh, ensure that this is an authentic expression of repentance by allowing the descendants to have a voice in this program and be able to, to tell us essentially whether that's the case. Um, so number one, we felt that it would be very important 
for the team, the VTS team, Ebony, myself, the researchers that are associated with this program, to do everything in our power to make sure that the descendants would get everything that they want out of this program, whatever that might be, whether it's primarily uh, memorialization of their ancestor, that's what's important to them, and actually, I'll, I'll tell you a secret, for most of them, that's actually what is most important or whether it is the financial resources that come along with the program, perhaps educational opportunities that come along with the program, but we felt we need to make sure we're doing everything we can to, to, make, to, to um, uh, ensure that they get what they want out of the program. I felt, number two, that um, it was very important that some form of financial disbursement should be made available to, from the program with no strings attached. And we often got this question at the beginning, well, why did you decide to do cash payments? And this is, this is at least part of the reason why. Uh, we felt it was important, uh, you know, not simply to give a, a grant or, you know, people would have to apply for or, and then have, you know, to report about or something like that, but that they should be given something that was theirs and the, the seminary was giving them, you know, relinquishing control of, uh, of something. It sends, I think, a serious signal that the seminary, uh, again, is not merely taking a stance of tolerating or accepting or welcoming black people, but is actually acknowledging a debt. And at this point, it's, it's symbolic because uh, the amount of money is not very large in the overall scheme of things. It's not a game changer for anybody's life. Um, and it's not a huge proportion of the seminary's wealth or riches. However, it does, I think, send a very important signal about the labor that the seminary stole and exploited. Another thing is that the disbursement uh, is a tangible recognition that uh, this, this um, need to do reparations is not just some figment of misguided black imagination, but it's rather based upon historical realities that demand redress. Uh, and so in actually providing funds, I think it sends that signal. It sends a signal that um, the party that owes something to another party should not feel like it has to get a say in what the other party does with what is provided to them. Uh, one of the most insulting features to me that I've heard in conversations um, about reparations and that I think comes directly from anti-black racial ideology in the United States of America, is that somehow, well, we're gonna give this money or we're gonna do this thing, but we need to make sure that you know, they handle it right and that they do the right thing with it and that you know, they don't squander it. Which um, to me just speaks completely to stereotypes about black people and our level of responsibility and so on and so forth. So it was important to relinquish control um, and even in a, in a spiritual way, uh, if we think about the taking of control from people, taking control of their bodies, taking control of their labor, this is a small way of symbolically saying control is being given back. So that was, uh, you know, about all of that, about giving the uh, cash disbursements. But what are some of the other ways that it was important to signal um, that we were serious about putting the descendants at the center? 
The program, it seemed to me, should be set up in a long-term and an open-ended way with a commitment to the descendant community that the seminary is bound to honor and regularly reevaluate. And the fact that we are trying to set up a trust, basically, a financial trust, but also a personal and relational trust that's ongoing with no particular end in sight, that the seminary does have to come back every year and look at the resources that are being provided, I think um, speaks to that principle or that value of having a long-term and open-ended commitment. Another thing was that we felt it was important for there to be um, the potential for the descendants to assert more control over the program over time. And interestingly enough, the, the video explained the shareholder uh, schema that we use for um, dispersing the funds. I actually see that as being as much about providing a means for the group of descendants to eventually have some control over the program as it is about dispersing the funds. Because in a sense, we, it, it gives us a way of constantly being in connection and in touch with these descendants, and it gives them a way of speaking about what they want to do with the funds and what they want to see happen with the program. Uh, and it's my hope that eventually we will be having conversations where individuals and individual families are not only talking about what they're doing with their piece of the money, but also uh, thinking about the larger um, financial uh, framework of the program. We haven't gotten there yet, but that's, it, it opens a door, I think, for that. Um, it was also important that there should be uh, a means for descendants to offer direct and ongoing feedback to the leaders of VTS um, so that they can really say what they think about the program. One example of this uh, that we use at the very beginning of the program is the fact that they do get to meet with Dean Markham as part of their onboarding. And it's a very open-ended meeting where they can say, you know, whatever they want to say about their thoughts regarding the program at that point. Um, but then, you know, the, the ways that uh, descendants come to campus and participate in the life of the community means that they are on a regular basis running into the dean or running into uh, various board members or vice presidents or whoever, and they can share their thoughts about what we're doing um, in the program. It's actually very interesting. There's, a, there's one descendant and his wife who comes to lunch in the refectory um, very often, and, you know, they're the type of people that when they go somewhere, you know, they make themselves known. And so I came to the refectory one day, and there were all these people who were going up to them and saying, oh, hi, how are you doing? And they knew so many of the seminarians and faculty. As a matter of fact, they knew more of the seminarians than I did, because it was earlier on in the year, and it usually takes me about a year before I learn all the new seminarians who come in. So they knew a lot of those people. Um, but the, 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 the point is, uh, and, and Joshua is sig signaling that I need to wrap up, and I'm almost done. Perfect timing. Um, but it, you know, it really does provide the space for there to be a sort of feedback loop with the descendants. And so at this point, um, I, tell, I say to people that we are at the beginning of the middle of the program. We've established it. We've given out quite a few funds. And now we're at a point where I think it becomes about 
first of all, uh, creating the physical memorial or physical memorials on campus, and that's what we're, we're actually uh, beginning to work on. We just started working on it this year, and we'll be moving into the sort of designing phase next academic year, um, and I hope we'll have a memorial up soon. Uh, it's also about maintaining those relationships that have already been built, and lastly, getting more descendant control of the program. So in conclusion, I will say that um, VTS is attempting to shine a light on its wrongdoing by opening up a flexible and responsive space in the present moment for a long mistreated but resilient community to explore a piece of their family history, memorialize that history, take an honored seat in the contemporary life of the institution if they so choose, determine to what extent they might want to have a voice in the future of VTS as an institution, and ultimately let the seminary know whether it is bearing fruits that are worthy of repentance. Thank you very much. We have a little time for questions, I yeah, think. Yeah, we do. If uh, I can ask, you go to that center mic so the people who are joining us online can both see and hear you. That'd be great. We've got about seven minutes uh, for questions. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes, okay. we can. Hi, I'm Sandra Mills. I've been doing a lot of research about St. Columbus history. Um, and I have two questions for you. One of them is how, as I understand it, you have sort of a whole uh, endowment fund at VTS, and portion, a portion of that has been designated as a reparations endowment. Correct, yes. How did you arrive at that decision, and what, how, did, how did you allocate, shall we say, funds for the reparation portion? That's a great question. So uh, what happened uh, was that the uh, board had given a sort of outreach fund or had designated an outreach fund of a certain amount uh, for the seminary administration to use. And as they thought about it, they decided this would be perfect for a seed of a reparations program. So the amount itself was not calculated on the basis of, I mean, you can't, the, the enormity of the, the sin uh, makes it kind of virtually impossible to calculate that, but, but there wasn't even an attempt to really try on our part. It was, here's some, some tangible funds that we can use for a purpose. Let's see what we can do with them. Um, but in terms of, you know, if, if an institution is thinking about how to calculate that, you might take a look at uh, the book by Kirsten Mullen and William Darity, uh, From Here to Equality, about black reparations. They have a whole chapter where they talk about sort of different approaches for calculating what appropriate reparations would be for black Americans. They're doing it on the governmental, the federal government level, so they're thinking about it very broadly, but some of the principles and values involved might be useful. Okay, that's very helpful. Thank you. And then another quick question. Well, maybe it's not quick. Um, I mean, I applaud your efforts to trace the ancestors and to do work to repair those relationships. But what about all the African Americans who were denied admission to VTS? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Is there anything that you're trying to do about that? 
not as a part of the official reparations program. However, um, as uh, was mentioned in my introduction, I'm the Associate Dean of Multicultural Ministries. And so we do have a lot of other programs and other, um, there's, a, there's a, an awareness of the history of blacks at the seminary and how uh, unjust that has been in many respects. Um, for a long time, um, to give one example, uh, there was a, a tuition program uh, at VTS and any black Episcopalian going to study in any degree program in any um, uh, order of ministry received free tuition. Now, we discontinued that um, several years ago because we moved to a model where everybody receives free tuition. But for several decades, that was, that was the case, and that's one example of the ways that the seminary has tried to correct that. Um, but the, the reparations program has been more about recognizing the exploited uh, labor. Um, so, okay, thank yeah. you very uh -huh. much. Jeff Stensland. One of the things we're going to have to deal with as a, as a church here is how much do we do on our own reparations work and how much do we do as being part of the diocese because the diocese has their own reparations work and how do you, in terms of the seminary, decide, well, what's going to be just our seminary's role and what's mm -hmm. going to be our role in a bigger reparations work that maybe is part of the whole diocese? That's a great question, and I view it really as uh, a both and, at least in terms of what we're doing at the seminary. Clearly what I've described to you and what we're focused on now is the piece that relates to VTS, what we can do about the history uh, that we have at our institution. But over time, um, and, and this, this goes into what I was saying before about having a long-term and open-ended commitment. And over time, what I am hoping to see is for the seminary to engage more in the broader reparations movement. Uh, and I'm thinking about, you know, what is going on in the Episcopal Church, but also um, the reparations organizations uh, that have been working on this and advocating for reparations for years um, and have, you know, paved the way and led the way. Uh, and, and from whom we've taken some inspiration in setting up our program. Uh, I, I want to see us, co you know, committing to them and joining with them to do that larger, broader work uh, of reparations. Um, the, the talk that I gave today is based on an article that's going to appear uh, in a book called The Time Is Now, which is various religious scholars talking about reparations and, and arguing for reparations. Um, and so there's, there's a lot more that I could have talked about, but one of the things that was in the essay that I had to omit is, you know, information about the larger reparations movement and some of these other organizations and um, the, the principles that they use and how they have influenced us uh, in our program. And, and we want to now go back and be able to support uh, what, what they're doing. Um, <clears throat> you've talked about a uh, broader approach. I appreciate that. I, I, the whole question of enslavement uh, is uh, a difficult one. As Jim Wallace said, uh, slavery didn't uh, disappear. It just took on other forms. Mm. And it 
a black man or woman, maybe formerly enslaved in Jamaica, coming to the United States in 1866, uh, experienced um, slavery in a different form, generation after generation. Mm -hmm. uh, have you given thought to uh, uh, specifically uh, focusing on formerly enslaved people as opposed to uh, the effects of Jim Crow, you referred to Jim Crow. Um, and I think the, the, the sin committed by St. Columbus, and I can't speak for VTS, uh, was one of complicity and silence. Um, mm -hmm. so anyway, I know you struggle with that. If, if, I'm, if I'm understanding your question correctly, um, our program does focus on f f uh, formerly enslaved and Jim Crow. The reason why it seems from what I've been talking about that we're focused on Jim Crow is because it's a lot easier to get in touch with that history. So what we have, you know, most of what we have found has been in relationship to the Jim Crow era, which we are committed to, and, and the fact that there's so many families around the seminary. I mean, these are people who still, many, in many cases, live right near the seminary. And the fact that that's the case, we felt, we can't say we're gonna do a reparations program and there's all this living history right here and we're not going to address it. So that was a warrant to do that work. But it's also, from an investigative standpoint, um, you know, simpler. So we are working on getting names of enslaved persons and finding their descendants and we will be, uh, you know, they, they will become a part of the program as we find them. It's just that that's harder and it's taken longer. Last question, real quick. Uh, thanks very much. Um, did you provide any insight or recommendations about um, just mechanically how the, the program might work long term? Mm. Like your consideration like a one-time payment versus an annual payment, and you have very good relationships with the people that come and talk to you, and and how um, it's important to give the people that are affected by this uh, insight into or, or input into how the program's run long term. So I just wonder, like as, as people unfortunately pass away and, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the generations, uh, you know, the shares might get uh, multiple shares. Mm -hmm, and I just mm -hmm. wonder if you could uh, give us any insight or recommendations how to approach those uh, types of complexities. So uh, to try and answer this very briefly, because it's a great question. Um, but a complex one. The fact that we've set it up the way we have um, is in a way designed to put pressure on the institution to keep looking at this every year. And so it, it does mean that there could be a period of time where the shares get smaller because it's based on the growth of the market and also how many shareholders we have. Right now we have 100 and, about 140 shareholders, so it's gotta be split 140 ways every year. And then as you say, people die, they, they can tell us what they want to do with it. They tell us, this goes to my grandchildren or wherever. Um, but you know, families grow, it may have to get split more ways. But what that does is it, it, it's, you know, the fact that we've entered into these agreements with this family, these families, it means that the seminary is going to have to keep coming back and looking at that and saying, is this really, like, significant enough? Is this meaningful enough? How do we make this more meaningful for the most number of people? 
Uh, and the longer that we're in that long-term relationship with the descendants, the more they're able to tell us, this is what we want to see happen. Uh, and that's what we've tried to build in so that, you know, we, we felt it was important for us to act decisively uh, in the beginning to show that we were serious in various ways, but that over time the descendants will be able to make their voices and their wishes known, not only for their own individual peace, but for the whole collective of the program and the reparations movement. But that's a great, I would love to talk a lot more about that, but I know Thanks we so need much. to be finishing up. <laughs> Thank you.